Welcome to Friendly Words, the sermon podcast of Pratt Friends Church in Pratt, Kansas. The message you're about to hear was originally preached at Pratt Friends Church on Sunday, July 18, 2021. It focuses on who's in control of your life. The message to all who will listen is Jesus is the rightful ruler of all, and the wise person bows their knee to him. Now, here is Pastor Mike Neifert. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are here, and we invite you to speak to us now. I pray that your spirit would accomplish all that you desire as your word goes forth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So my siblings and I, along with our spouses, get along pretty well. We disagree on political and religious matters. But we don't let those things keep us from caring about each other. We we make allowances for differences over disputable matters. Uh, We're not going to let theological arguments or ideological differences tear us apart. We'll leave the burn it to the ground stuff to everybody on Facebook. (laughs) All right. For almost a year and a half now, my siblings and I have met together on Zoom almost every Sunday night. Our first electronically facilitated gathering was to figure out what was going on with dad and mom and how we were going to help them. Uh, We pulled it together last minute and we began talking about what was then dad's just beginning health issues. And uh, we wanted to be on the same page so we could and know the facts and be ready to act if mom and dad needed help. So it was from these video calls that the idea of encouraging them to move here to Pratt, to be near us or to be near one of us, uh, began to come out and because we wanted, didn't know how long mom was going to be able to handle dad's care by herself. And so um, we, uh, when things got worse with his mini stroke, we talked more seriously about that and mom and dad were often with us online for those conversations. Now, please understand that these uh, conferences are not, I wouldn't want to characterize them as laser-focused business-like meetings. (laughs) That would be a gross misrepresentation of anything that happens in the Knifer clan. Lots of silliness, lots of little rabbit trails here and there throughout the months, and uh, our family conversations are pretty free-ranging under normal circumstances, and they didn't transform into something stayed and stilted when this circumstance came up. As you can imagine, questions arose in our hours of talking together, which we didn't know for sure how to answer. Uh, We had differing ideas, we went back and forth, but we stayed united in purpose. We were together to help mom and dad. We wanted what was best for both of them. And we have a Zoom call scheduled for tonight. So, the religious groups of Jesus' day did not get along as well as my brothers and sister and all of our spouses do. Uh, They were held widely divergent views on important matters and let their disagreement create either coldness or heat between them, depending on the moment. Uh, They didn't like each other very much, and every single person in Israel knew that they didn't like each other. It was just, that's how things were. The Pharisees and the Sadducees did not get along. They, the, the Pharisees would mutter about those stupid liberal Sadducees, and the Sadducees would scoff at the stodgy, stuck-in-the-mud, holier-than-thou Pharisees. It was a lot like today, once in a while. 
Interestingly, when Jesus came on the scene, the two factions came together as never before because they found in Jesus a common enemy. He was a threat to the power and the prestige that both groups felt like they were entitled to, and so they would attack him. And the back and forth which ensued was not, was not at all friendly. <coughs> Matthew 22 is full of mean-spirited interactions between members of the religious elite, that's where the mean-spirited part came from, and Jesus, their target. One after another, the questions came. Jesus parried the thrust of a Pharisee only to be attacked by a Sadducee. Then the Pharisees came back with another trapping inquiry, and Jesus responded artfully with every jab, and then he turned the tables and asked them the question. That's the summary of chapter 22. The conflict, of course, didn't start at the beginning of this chapter. There were dust-ups which preceded this. We've seen several of them as we've gone through the book of Matthew. If you go back to chapter 9, you have complaints from the Pharisees about Jesus' dinner companions. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. That was terrible that day, at least as far as the Pharisees were concerned. Uh, nitpicking about the Sabbath, about picking grain on the Sabbath, uh, that was in chapter 12. This guy's got disciples who don't know, or just keep doing the stuff that's unlawful. Uh, there was bickering about eating with unwashed hands in chapter 15. There's a little Jewish joke there. You've got that one. And an extremely loaded question about divorce in chapter 19, which we covered a couple of weeks ago. Is it lawful for, to divorce for any and every reason? So, all these skirmishes... Up to that, up to this point, have been just the Pharisees. Although it's likely that some of the Sadducees were kind of on the sidelines, just seeing how things went and kind of getting the, getting a feel for the winds of change and what was taking place. The more liberal group knew that knew what was going on and could see things would go badly for all involved in the religious leadership if Jesus kept upsetting the religious apple cart. When Jesus started telling stories that made people suspect that both groups were opposed to God himself, they allied, they allied themselves, if only for a moment, with their theological rivals. It's the temporary unified, tempor this temporarily unified front that we're going to see on display as we make our way through Matthew 22 this morning. So if you'll turn to Matthew 22, if you haven't already done so, well, and find verses 15 to 22, you and I are ready to roll through this passage. There's a parable before that. You can read that on your own, but we're going to start at verse 15 and read through 22, and we're going to see the first of the questions that's posed to Jesus to test him. So, verse 15, Matthew 22, 15 to 22 says this, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Verse 18, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Verse 22, 
When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. The beginning of this is almost comical. They're laying it on thick, telling Jesus how wonderful he is, telling him how they're being all complimentary. Their dislike of him and his ways has been thoroughly documented throughout Matthew's, Matthew's narrative, but here they are playing nicey-nicey. The funny thing is that all the things that they say are true. Jesus is a man of integrity. He teaches the way of God in truth. He isn't swayed by others. He pays no attention to who someone is. He just says what God has him to say. So why all the sweet talk? They've got to know that Jesus is going to see through their kind words, their charade. And so their aim has to be to throw other people off, to throw the crowds off. They're trying to make it look like they're enamored by Jesus all of a sudden and that they desire to know what he thinks. If you remember, though, we've talked about this uh, about in this culture. If you ask something publicly, you are trying to one-up somebody. You are trying to bring shame on them and to bring discredit to them. So here they are. What we, what, we, what we see here is that they really want Jesus to get in trouble. The imperial tax was a terribly unpopular exacting of money from the people. Most of the taxes had been local or regional to that point, but at this point they began, the, the emperor decided he was going to get a, a little bit more of this. And so the imperial tax was to go directly to Rome. It was to go directly to help uh, fill his coffers and, and to raise funds to take care of the army that was oppressing everybody. So there had been a previous incident uh, with a guy named Judas the Galilean. I read about that this week, and he had risen up against Rome over this inst the institution of this imperial tax, and he had been dealt with brutally by the government. He'd been wiped out. If Jesus spoke out against the tax then, Perhaps the local centurion was going to do away with him. Perhaps that's what was going to happen. So the Pharisees were hoping for that. If he didn't speak against the tax, then his clout with the people would diminish, and perhaps he'd get in trouble in that way as well. Well, Jesus doesn't neither. He asks a question about whose image is on the coin. This is the coin that was used to pay the tax. He said, whose, whose image is on it? And of course, he's informed that it's Caesar's image is on there. And so he says, basically, well, Caesar prints this, and Caesar's demanded this tax, and so it's his coin, so give it back to him. Is this capitulation to Caesar's rule? Not really. He seems to be simply stating the obvious, that that coin belongs to him, and that you give back to him what he's given to you, or what he's put into circulation. Here's the question. He also says that you should give to God what's God's. So what belongs to God? You do. The people do. They are made or stamped with his image. You remember way back in Genesis, God created them male and female. He created them in the image of God. So the stamp that's on us is that we, are, we belong to him, and so we ought to give ourselves back wholly to him. That's his message. You are made in God's image, you are, are, so are you giving your all to him, bowing before the king, submitting to his direction, or is your more, life more about what you want and, and what you feel like doing and what's in it for you? 
Me first is an extremely easy mode to fall into, isn't it? God help us. Then there's that last verse of this section. Verse 22, when they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. The Pharisees, they got beat. So the score, if we're keeping track, is Jesus one, opponents zero. Time for the second play. This one's made by the Sadducees. Take a look at with, with me at verses 23 through 33. That same day, so they're not letting up much, sometime along in the same day, that same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, remember they don't believe about in the resurrection, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So how crazy is it that these guys who believe that there's no resurrection pose a question about the resurrection? They don't even believe in it. That's what they're doing here, right? They think that, they think that life in the body is all that there is. There's nothing beyond the grave in their minds. No heaven, no hell, no eternal life. You die and that's it. So mocking what they regard as nonsense, they dream up this preposterous scenario that involves an age-old practice in Israel. It was the rule among the Jews that if a man died without an heir, his brother would marry the dead man's wife and produce offspring for his brother so that his brother's name would not be wiped out from the records of Israel. I like my sisters-in-law. They're great people, but marrying one of them... That'd be a little weird, right? I mean, it just feels odd in our day. But it wasn't weird in Israel. This was important things. The, the heritage or the inheritance needed to be passed along so that, that the people of God would continue to have their name, your, their name uh, be passed down through the ages. So the Sadducees are not disrespecting this, path, this practice but they're mocking the notion of an afterlife. They think that they've got Jesus on this one, he'll have to concede that there's no such thing as heaven or hell, and this, this life after death thing is one of the points of contention that they have with the Pharisees, and so the Sadducees are not only trying to get Jesus, but they're hoping that he'll put the Pharisees in their place as well, and that they'll win this argument. Do they win? Is Jesus stumped? Are the Pharisees put in their place? No, no, no. Jesus speaks pointedly. He tells these guys, I love how he says this, you don't know the scriptures. These are guys who are religious and who everybody looks up to. They're the ones that rule in Jerusalem and give direction for spiritual things. And he says, you don't even know the scriptures. You don't even pay attention. He says that they're clueless about the power of God and he discounts their silly whose wife will she be questioned 
by, by telling them how things are in the afterlife. No marrying, no giving in marriage, everyone belongs to God and everyone is alive. Interesting, isn't it, that he goes back, that Jesus goes back to this common phrase from Israel's history books. If you read in the book of Genesis, it'll say over and over, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It continues in Exodus. He keeps taught that phrase comes up over and over and over again. And the important part of it is the I am. That's current, not past tense. I was, no, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It's proof that there is life after death because he continues to say, I am in the present the God of these men who have died in the physical realm, but who continue to live in my presence. So when God says, I am the God of, he is showing his eternal nature and the eternal aliveness of those who are in him. You are going to live forever. Every one of you. You will, if you are a believer, never, ever, ever, ever be separated from God. The moment that you die, you will be alive with him in paradise. I want you to hear what Jesus said to Martha, Lazarus' sister, before Jesus raised this man to life with a simple command, come forth. The dialogue that I'm reading is found in John chapter 11, verses 23 to 27. And what Jesus says is so important. It's meant to be hope-giving and comforting to those who have lost loved ones. And so it means a lot to me today. And I'll bet it means a lot to you as well in the circumstances where you've lost loved ones. So listen to Jesus' words. I'm reading from John 11, 23 to 27. Jesus said to her, that is to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am, present tense, the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me, in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is come into the world. Those who die in Christ live even though they die. Jesus' words, not mine, I'm not making this up, I'm just reading what he says. Look at them. Jesus states clearly, I am the resurrection of life. He goes on to affirm the eternality of those who believe in him. Those who believe will live even though they die. Those who live by believing, believing in him will never die. Never. Back to Matthew 22. What's the score now? It's Jesus 2, opponents 0. Hearing that their rivals had lost a round of questioning to Jesus, the Pharisees stepped back into the ring with a new question. This one is far different than the first that they asked. Let's read. We're going to read. Uh, we're ready for verses 34 to 40. This is Matthew 22, 34 to 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Sadducees let me try that again. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So looking at this question... 
with modern American eyes, I don't really see the trap, do you? I mean, it seems like an innocent enough, maybe even a wise enough thing to ask. Wouldn't it be good to know what, what was the greatest commandment according to Jesus? It seems like it would. But there's more to this question than meets the eye. James Merritt, in his Touching Lives devotional, uh, speaks about this passage, and he says this. Why is this a loaded question? Thanks for asking that, because I want to know. And he, he writes this. It is, it is loaded because in those days, the Pharisees had counted 613 separate laws. They had divided those laws into affirmative laws, 247, and negative laws, 365, and into heavy laws, like our present-day felonies, and light laws, like misdemeanors. They spent a lot of time ranking laws, yet still considered all laws equally great because it was God who had commanded them. If Jesus picked out one law as greater than the others, he would be saying that the other laws were not that important. So see, it is a trapping question. They're testing him again. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest one. Jesus says so. Your heart says, yep, makes sense to me. <coughs> if you love God with everything, you're going to get things right. You'll obey him in all things. You'll stay focused on his stuff rather than your stuff. You'll be subject to the king. And if you get the second commandment, which we'll get to in a second, if you get that one right, then you'll be the servant of all. And he said that the servant of all is greatest in the kingdom. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second one. Do any of us love our neighbors like this? Not without God's help. We don't have any trouble loving ourselves. We're pretty good at selfishness and watching out for number one. That's natural, but Jesus says love the guy next to you in the same way you love yourself. We're to look out for the needs and the wants and the interests of others because if we are all doing this one right, then everybody's needs are going to be being met. Right? Doesn't that make sense? If I'm looking out for your needs and you're looking out for mine, then we're going to meet each other's needs and we're going to be in a great place, a place of unity and a place where people look at that and say, wow, I want some of that. The final words that Jesus said in this third debate about the law kind of shut the door for any criticism that might have been leveled to him for elevating one law or another. And he says this, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love Lord your God or love God, love people. Isn't it true? Let's just look at the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to go in order, but here we go. You shall have no other gods before me. That's loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Honor your father and your mother. Love others. No idolatry. Love God. Don't murder or steal or bear false testimony. Love others. Do not misuse God's name or dishonor the Sabbath. Love God. Do not commit adultery or covet what belongs to someone else. Love others. That's just the Ten Commandments. Even the dietary laws that we sometimes, they kind of seem odd to us, and we're sure glad that, that we can eat shrimp and pork and all those things, but we think, think they sound kind of odd, but they, they were a matter of loving God and obeying Him. The restrictions on sexual expression outside of marriage of a man and a woman were about God loving or loving God in obedience and about not violating someone else. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
how can you love God today? How can I love God? By obeying his commands and worshiping him. How can I love my neighbor? How can you love your neighbor? By obeying God's commands and treating others as he calls us to. Living according to kingdom values instead of our own. I think the score is three to nothing now. Jesus has taken every round. He's not been trapped by any question asked of him. He's responded wisely up to every test. But there's one more question in Matthew chapter 22. And the one, this one comes from Jesus. Pay attention as our master makes the Pharisees and the Sadducees, if they're around, makes them squirm in verses 41 to 46. Follow along. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my feet, or sit at my hand, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. David was that king above all kings in the Jewish mindset, in their culture. He was the one who had, had risen up at God's command and, and who had followed God, had defeated Israel's enemy, expanded their land. David was honored above all the kings. He was the one that united all the tribes and everybody followed. He was the king also who had received the promise which made every Jewish man, every Jewish woman anxiously watch for a new ruler that was to come. These were the words that Nathan the prophet spoke to David. I'm reading from 2 Samuel 7, 12-16 if you'd like to read along with me. This is what he said. This is the covenant that he made with David. In the past, God had made a covenant with Abram, saying, I'm going to bless all nations uh, through you. He made a covenant with, with Moses. If you will follow me, then I'll, I'll bless you. If you choose to reject me as a nation, then I'm going to curse you. Those who curse you will be cursed. And those who bless. That was the second covenant. The third covenant is this one. This is the Davidic covenant. This is what God promised to David. Verse 12, 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. David's descendant would rule forever. That was the promise. So whose son was the Messiah? The Pharisees gathered before Jesus answered that question as they had always, as they had always done ever since Sunday school. They didn't have Sunday school, but we'll call it that. Okay, this was the, the answer that was drilled into that. It's the son of David. And yes, he was a descendant of David, but then Je Jesus points out that it's not truly the correct answer. Whose son would the Messiah be? be when David himself calls him Lord. When the king above all kings in the Jewish mindset says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my feet. 
the one who would come would not be just the son of David. He would be the son of God. The one who ruled over David. Or Zip. Everyone was stunned, silent. They slunk away. It says that no one dared ask questions anymore. Don't you wish you had that power once in a while? But Jesus does. He knows how to answer because he's the son of God. And he knew what was taking place. And so we come to the son of God and we ask this question, who's your faith in? Is your faith in Jesus, the Son of God, the promised King whose reign goes on forever and ever and ever? Are you submitted to him, loving God with all that you have, loving your neighbor as yourself, knowing that one day, because your faith is in him, you're going to spend eternity with him, knowing that you're eternal, that your life is going to continue on? You are, a God, you are God's image bearer, and everything that you have is to be given back to him because he has his stamp on you as a believer in Jesus. This whole chapter, all this back and forth and all this bickering between Jesus and his detractors, it's been about who's in control, isn't it? About who rules. It's been about submission to the rightful king of all, and it's been about obedience to God and to God alone. The Pharisees and the Sadducees messed that up. They, they walked away, they were still mad, and they wanted to kill Jesus, but there were those who chose to follow him. The disciples were following him, the twelve. There were others that continued to follow him because they heard the good news that there's eternal life through Jesus. I want to encourage you to consider all that you've heard in these next few moments and respond to God, to answer the tough questions about your priorities and your allegiance to the one and only rightful king over all. It's Jesus. So let's take a few moments to worship and to pray and to talk with God, and uh, we'll let him do the speaking from here until we're done. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for sending him as the rightful heir of the kingdom, as the king above all kings, even above David, the one who's eternal and who gives by faith your grace, your forgiveness, your eternal life. I pray, God, that you would give us your wisdom as we live out our lives for you this week, that we would be obedient to you, that we would trust in you, and that we, <coughs> that we would follow. We thank you for your goodness. Send us out with your blessing and your guidance. Amen. Let me close with Jesus' words concerning the greatest commandments. This is just a reminder. We've already talked about it, but I want you to hear them again. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So go out and live for your king this week, loving him with everything that you have and giving his grace and love away to everyone you meet. That's the kingdom default. What you've received, you give away. God be with you as you do so. 
We hope you have been encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. If you want to hear each week's message, be sure to subscribe to Friendly Words in your podcast app. May God bless you as you follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit.